0: To think theologically about the evangelical future is to think about God and not simply about ourselves. Um, God has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. That's not, I think, only talking about evangelicals, but I think it does include us or at least include large, large swaths of us. So there is cause for hope in our eschatological, inheritance and in the more proximate ecclesial promise of the indefectibility of the church, even if it falls on hard times.
1: Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine, and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary.
2: Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. Have you ever thought about that phrase, evangelical theology? Perhaps you even identify yourself as an evangelical. Now for some of you, maybe that is a label that brings you uh, great satisfaction and uh, even a bit of comfort as you think about how you grew up uh, perhaps in an evangelical church or even attended an even evangelical college or institution. But for others, the label evangelical can be a bit disheartening at times, uh, even frustrating. Uh, for others, it might be even a bit maddening, uh, depending on uh, how evangelicalism as a movement is going at any any given uh, moment. There's many reasons for this. Uh, this label evangelical uh, evangelical theology, in particular, is one that really can encompass uh, quite. Quite an array of diversity. I think, for example, uh, just in terms of hermeneutics, uh, the way there is uh, quite a divide, even among evangelicals, between, say, uh, certain evangelical approaches over the last couple decades. Maybe we could call it a type of uh, biblicism that approaches uh, theology uh, through a biblicist method. Uh, Versus uh, other evangelicals who want to approach theology very differently, uh, even read Scripture very differently through the lens of theological interpretation, and even a, uh, a type of theology that likes to contemplate God in, even in engagement with philosophical ideas. Evangelical theology is also quite broad because in many ways, well, theology is not just uh, an end in and of itself. Uh, Evangelicals love to talk about theology, of course, but we also need to ask, well, what does theology have to do with, say, Christian virtues? Unfortunately, sometimes uh, these two discussions are severed from one another, theology and virtue, or theology and wisdom. Uh, Oftentimes, these are really divorced. Uh, It's sometimes rare to see a theological textbook that has something to say about the Christian virtues. But not all evangelicals uh, want us to go in that direction. Uh, Other evangelicals want us to open up this dialogue. Well, many of these questions and ambiguities, uh, sometimes even a bit of chaos, Well, it can be frustrating, but it also can be promising, reminding us uh, both of the perils, but also the promises of evangelical theology. I have asked, uh, really a theologian in his own right, he's written so many works uh, on evangelical theology, both in terms of history uh, and in terms of hermeneutics and theology itself, but I have asked uh, uh, Daniel Trier to come on the Credo podcast and to talk to us a little bit about his own journey, uh, how it is that he came into the evangelical uh, camp, uh, what evangelical theology means to him, and to press beyond that, even into Christian virtues, uh, what it means to talk about hermeneutics as an evangelical, and uh, more specifically, who are some of the evangelicals that have influenced him. Dan, thank you so much for joining me on the Credo podcast.
0: Thank you for the opportunity.
2: You have written uh, so many different things. You've written textbooks uh, on evangelical theology. Uh, You have written commentaries, uh, commentary on Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And then you've also pressed into hermeneutics. So I guess my first question for you, Dan, is when you go back, uh, before you were even writing in some of these areas, uh, who were some of the evangelicals who influenced you early on, especially, uh, I think, back to some of your early work uh, on virtue and wisdom in particular? Uh, what what influenced you, who influenced you uh, to start exploring uh, this connection, for example, between theology and virtue?
0: Well, I'll try not to give too long-winded of an answer, but in some ways you have to start with Godly parents who raised me in the church and in the faith, and a Bible quizzing program during my teenage years in which I memorized 13 books of the Bible, including some very big ones uh, Matthew, uh, Acts, Romans, John, and so on. So I've been a Bible haunted person, I suppose you'd say. And when I was in seminary, I had a great experience at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. Then it was Grand Rapids Baptist Seminary. And the curriculum was really centered around biblical theology. Mm. And so I got a very healthy, redemptive historical framework for putting the Bible together and learned the skills of Greek and Hebrew exegesis, or at least Greek exegesis and Hebrew exegesis with helps. And I'm very grateful for my seminary experience, but I had what I think is a fairly standard experience, too, of a kind of disconnect between the exegetical and theological professors and classes I had, and then the more practical or pastoral theological areas. I had a life changing professor in Christian education, John Lillis, who gave me a paradigm for thinking about all of ministry as a form of education or formation and shaped how I think about the church in relation to Ephesians chapter 4, a less individualistic model of spiritual formation that would shape my own life and the lives of others. I was very grateful for that paradigm and for pastoral theological coursework, but I still felt keenly that there was a kind of disconnect or tension between some of the more exegetical and theological areas and the more applied areas. And I was the student academic rep to the faculty And they began reading material from David Kelsey and others on the nature of theological education. And I read that material right before going off to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for my Ph.D., And so I was already interested in hermeneutics. I was planning to work with Kevin Van Hooser as he returned from Edinburgh to Ted's. Uh, He would be my supervisor. But I was casting about for a topic somewhere in the area of theological hermeneutics. And then the connection point just kind of happened in a particular way, actually, when J.I. Packer was on campus and became ill Uh, and he had to be rushed to the hospital and so the event was canceled and i was standing there talking to a CE prof, Linda Cannell, at um, the event who, who she was hosting it. And then she ended up becoming second reader on my dissertation. And I started exploring how the talk about wisdom that had become so influential in the theological education debate might connect over to the hermeneutical areas that I was already interested in. And so those two worlds finally started to come together for me. Mm.
2: You know, your book, Uh, virtue and the voice of God towards a theology of wisdom, Um, I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I don't think that this is unrelated uh, to the commentary you eventually wrote years later on Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. So uh, for our listeners, uh, maybe some of them, especially if they're pastors out there, maybe they, they resonate with some of your own theological journey that you just mentioned. Um, but they might, depending on what they've, what books of the Bible they focused on and what they've preached on, they might be very foreign to books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Uh, what is so? I, I mean, oftentimes a book like Proverbs is approached um, in a very piecemeal way, uh, almost as if these are just you know nuggets of of wisdom. Um, but proverbs seems to be much more of that in terms of the vision it's casting for wisdom in light of the covenant of the Old Testament, and then uh, goodness, Ecclesiastes. Uh, how many how many uh, pastors out there never even touch a book like Ecclesiastes? So indeed, <laughs> how uh, in in my life, um, and maybe this is just the older I get, but I find Ecclesiastes so profound and. Uh, very much a correction to so many of of uh, the ambitions that we are, you know, as Ecclesiastes talks about the chasing after the wind uh, that that so occupies us. So, how how have these books formed you? Um, how, how did they really uh, propel so much of of that journey you just mentioned?
0: Well, again, the serendipities of providence work powerfully here. When I was going to write on a theology of wisdom for my dissertation, Willem van Gemmeren in his inimitable way, Old Testament scholar who was teaching at TEDS, said, well, make sure that when you uh, write about wisdom, you actually look at what the Bible says about it. (laughs) And of course, I had intended to do that, but I was thinking at that point chiefly in terms of material in Paul, because there's so much about wisdom in various ways in Paul. And Willem pointed out to me that um, there, there was a, a whole theology embedded in the kinds of writings that you have in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and, of course, Wisdom Psalms and elsewhere. And he particularly encouraged me to look at the Tree of Life as a interesting motif in the way that it spans here and there across the Old Testament. And so that got me started on a journey into Proverbs. And then when uh, time came for the Brazos Theological Commentary on the Bible to be developed, initially, uh, the editor, Rusty Reno, was just looking to me for recommendations of people that he could approach uh, that we might have surfaced in our work on the Dictionary for Theological Interpretation of the Bible that might be prospective authors. Mm. And then he realized that it would be at least polite to ask me, And um, I was a pretty junior scholar at that point, so it was clear that I was not going to get the parts of the Bible that the big names really wanted, which was fine. But uh, nobody was dying to write a commentary on Ecclesiastes, so I was able to grab Ecclesiastes, which has always been a kind of fascination for me. And then uh, Proverbs came in tow when uh, someone else uh, who was supposed to co-author the volume was unable to follow through and do it. Then I got Proverbs uh, two for one, <laughs> and I'm glad I did. I think as evangelicals, you know, we we really care about helping people to live ordinary life in light of the Bible's authority, but it's easy for us to struggle with that, either to um, stick with bigger theological parts of the Bible where we, we think we get doctrine from and not to have it touch the ground of ordinary life. So we stay in Romans and maybe in the first chapters of Romans, and that's practical in its own way, but in a different way. Or we go to something like Proverbs and we teach it in a kind of moralizing way. Mm. As you said earlier, you know, scattered nuggets that that might give us aphorisms that we can moralize with, but we don't really see theological patterns or significance there in the material. So I received that as a... um, serendipity of providence to take up that challenge. And of course, sometimes what we need is is to go back in order to go forward. And so I came to feel that the two ways tradition that Proverbs helped to birth shaped early Christianity through material like the Didache. And so there could be retrieval there. And there could also be retrieval of the seven deadly sins tradition as a way of organizing some of Proverbs' uh, moral teaching. So it it became an occasion not only for me to think about my ordinary life in a more concrete scriptural way, but also to learn parts of the tradition.
2: Now, I, I, I'm sure you've noticed this before, but uh, when, we, when you have read uh, contemporary treatments of theology, uh, think, for example, of uh, you know, big, big volumes that uh, treat evangelical theology, for example, Um, wisdom, uh, or just maybe the virtues at large, are at best uh, mentioned, but oftentimes uh, just neglected, left out, uh, as if it's altogether something else, uh, some some other type of discipline than theology itself. But when you go back in time, since you mentioned retrieval, when you look at some of the great Theologians of the past. Uh, you think of, for example, uh, Augustine or Thomas Aquinas. Uh, Thomas, his his Summa, for example, well, um, uh, a large portion of it is devoted to these Christian virtues. In your as you reflect on this, uh, what has your experience been, uh, if, as you've been writing uh, not only on virtue, but uh, even this commentary on uh, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, is what is this connection exactly between theology and virtue? Or, uh, as sometimes the, you know, the impression is given, uh, is there even a connection at all?
0: There's definitely a connection. If theology is not just about um ordering propositional truth statements rationally and then delivering them as dispassionately as possible <laughs> but rather about a practice of faith seeking understanding
1: mm.
0: a practice that certainly includes the cognitive and and seeks cognitive products in a certain sort of way but that really is rooted in prayer and in the life of the whole people of God seeking to understand how to live well before God and to love others well in God's name. If theology really is that more holistic practice, then it has to touch our character deeply. And the virtues deal with those inner dispositions from which behavior springs. And so they're connected to our belonging and being formed in Christian community, as well as um, the behavior that that results and the belief that in, informs um, that belonging and behavior. So we need those to be much more richly integrated. Mm-hmm. I have a suspicion that evangelicals Neglected the virtues partly because we became very Kantian in our ethics. We understandably wanted to protect the authority of divine commands, but we tended to translate the Bible's commands into Kantian rules um, for you know particular actions, particular ethical decisions in particular moments. We, we came to be very modern, very Kantian in our way of thinking about ethics. And we saw virtues as guilty by association with situation ethics or with more consequentialist approaches to ethics. Mm. We thought that they would produce a certain kind of relativism or relativity, that they would diminish the clarity and authority of divine commands. I, I think we've now come to understand that that was a mistake, but we had to go through a process where a lot of evangelical ethics in the 70s and 80s and maybe even into the 90s were taught uh, that way where we are, you know, divine command deontologists. We're not situation ethicists. And if we talk about virtues and character at all, it's in a kind of secondary way. And with a uh, a measure of suspicion. Mm. So eventually, Scripture, I hope, wins out, and the ways that the fruit of the Spirit and numerous other types of ethical material in Scripture are so amenable to a uh, virtue oriented way of thinking. Uh, I think. Drags us back to seeing the importance of the virtues and how we think about the moral life. and then i I will say, and this is probably to open a Pandora's box, but um, there are certainly differences between the virtue tradition in a Catholic metaphysical framework and the way that earlier evangelical divines, whether in the Wesleyan or in the Puritan tradition, might have talked about the virtues. And so uh, as we're sorting out exactly how we're going to relate to Catholic metaphysics as we become more open to engagement with Thomas and other classic sources, there's still going to be some work to do, I think, to be properly evangelical in the way that we appropriate the virtues.
2: Now, you you, you mentioned this a minute ago when you were talking about your commentary on Proverbs and Ecclesiastes how you wrote that commentary uh, very much in the vein of what we might call theological interpretation or theological interpretation of Scripture. And Of course, you've written on this topic as well. Uh, Our listeners, they may or may not be familiar with theological interpretation. Um, I'm guessing that many of them have heard of it. Uh, Perhaps they've read a thing or two, but uh, they've probably been taught at some point to be suspicious of it. Uh, so uh, uh, for all, for all kinds of uh, reasons that may or may not be accurate. Um, as as you well, first things first, uh, can you I know that this is asking the impossible, <laughs> but can you uh, try to define theological interpretation? And then I want to uh, maybe just take a couple minutes and just allow you to reflect on where is it, uh, how has it been since? Uh, We we think of theological interpretation of Scripture, uh, especially rising up to the surface uh, in, say, the 2000s, that first decade there. Uh, Where has it been in the last decade?
0: In my Introducing theological interpretation of Scripture book that came out in 2008, I used a a threefold alliterated framework. Um, TIS has a pri- puts a priority on canon, on creed, and on culture. That is, it's particularly interested in how the interpretation of any particular passage of scripture relates to the entire canon of scripture as the word of God. It's interested in how the ecumenical creeds of the church, the rule of faith, And perhaps particular confessional traditions thereafter can productively uh, inform our interpretation of particular passages of scripture. And then it's also interested in culture in the sense of the church's mission in the world. And it's open to the possibility that the feedback loop, uh, pastorally speaking, of doing ministry in particular contexts can bring questions to scripture that will help us to see fresh things there for its interpretation. It's not uh, trying to do eisegesis to ignore all of the benefits of um, traditional historical exegesis, but trying to be attentive to these larger contexts within which we practice the exegetical were some early TIS folks who spoke more sharply in their criticisms of historical critical exegesis. Most of those folks, I think it should be said, were either Catholics or mainline Protestants. So they were in contexts where historical criticism had become more fundamentally dominant in terms of the assumptions and practices of biblical interpretation than for us evangelicals. For evangelicals like me and Kevin Van Hooser and others who became interested in TIS, we didn't see it as overturning what we were doing as evangelicals in our pursuit of biblical theology that could helpfully inform systematic theology and vice versa— Um, But we saw it as perhaps helping evangelical, biblical, and theological scholarship to excel still more, to um, grab onto its commitments to the whole of Scripture being the Word of God a little more robustly and creatively in the exegetical task. I would just note that one of the earlier uses of the term theological exegesis in the later 20th century, after Barth and Bonhoeffer and some others had used it in the German context earlier in the century, one of the earlier uses of it is from J.I. Packer in 1985.
2: Mm.
0: He spoke of theological exegesis as one way of summarizing his theological method. So I think it's, it's an authentically evangelical way, or it can be at least an authentically evangelical way of thinking about how we approach the Bible. Um, then you asked, I guess, about the last decade or so and, and like any other, uh, conversation or loose movement with a collection of figures that are trying to figure out exactly what they're advocating. Uh, it's gone through some growing pains. I've got a conference paper that I'll be delivering at the SBL in response to a couple of books here in a few weeks where I use the motif of adolescence. I think that TIS is moving out of its early adolescent shrill phase where it was perceived as saying very negative things about yes. historical criticism and not having a very positive, clear definition. I think it's starting to move out of its early adolescence and into, you know, early adulthood, or at least approaching adulthood, that's going to mean that in some ways, um, it's become mainstream, uh, or it's become one of the mainstream players in the larger conversation. And that tends to tone down how new and interesting it seems. It's part of the conversation now. But it also certainly still has areas where the evangelicals within the TIS conversation uh, disagree among themselves and with those in uh, mainline Protestant and Catholic circles. So we'll see where the next decade heads, but I think it's made some progress.
2: Dan, you have uh, written extensively on TIS, but uh, as you've, and, and maybe as you've look at, looked ahead to uh, what the de- next decade holds uh, before us, uh, you've also Try to connect the dots between okay hermeneutics uh, and TIS to actually formulating and constructing uh, an evangelical theology. Now, uh, again, uh, depending, you know, some of our listeners may hear that phrase and think, "Oh goodness, evangelical theology!" That's you know, uh, I've had so many bad experiences. I don't want that. Um, others might think of evangelical and and uh, actually have. Uh, there, there might be some comfort. Uh, maybe they've uh, come out of other traditions in which uh, evangelical is actually quite a relief. Uh, so tell us, what, what, when you talk about evangelical theology, because you've written on this in, in so many different ways, what is it that you mean? Uh, what are you after? Uh, I noticed, for example, uh, even in your own construction of evangelical theology, Uh, it's also very historically rooted. Uh, For example, in your book, uh, Introducing Evangelical Theology, you begin in the way that many of the uh, confessions and catechisms of the past uh, started uh, or even ended with uh, the creed or the Ten Commandments or the Lord's Prayer. And yet at the same time, uh, you seem to be addressing so many of the uh, identity marks that uh, tend to uh, really stamp evangelicals of yesterday and today, but uh, with an eye to, to moving us in a certain direction. So what is that direction exactly?
0: Well, the last five years have certainly complicated the politics of the word evangelical. So um, my primary purpose is not to talk anybody into a label for a label's sake. I do tend to think that the late William Abraham, who just passed away, um, who was a lovely and fun human being, even if I had pretty substantial disagreements with him on some key points. I think he's right when he said that if if we had the if the label Evangelical went away, tomorrow, we would immediately have to invent an equivalent because there is this real thing in terms of an ecclesial network that has certain kinds of hard to define features that nevertheless functions as a certain kind of um, ecumenical coalition and, and theological culture. So is it better to try to rename it now that the evangelical label has um, become polluted by ourselves as well as by our culture, or is it better to try to retrieve the gospel-centered confessional Protestantism, the confessional and pietistic Protestantism that the label originally pointed to? That's a prudential judgment call. For the moment, I've obviously gone with the retrieval um, tactic, And so what is it that I'm trying to retrieve? I don't see myself as trying to retrieve um, either just a pietistic or ecumenical sensibility or an exhaustive confessional statement, but a kind of uneasy ecclesial and theological uh, tension between the two. I think evangelicalism at its best has a productive tension between those poles. And for me, um, Lausanne has been a key marker in this regard. Um, Lausanne brings to mind both John Stott and uh, Rene Padilla and other global figures. And um, I believe some more particular Uh, and conservative doctrines than Stott and Padilla and others might have expressed in the Lausanne Covenant. But I think the Lausanne Covenant and the ensuing movement is a helpful touch point because it reminds us of the global reach of what the Holy Spirit is doing among conservative Protestants who are on mission. So for me, Lausanne will be a starting point. J.I. Packer would be a theological hero. I'm still discovering, even when getting used books from saints that have gone to glory, the number of practical theological things that Packer wrote that were published in the 70s and 80s that I didn't even realize were there. And they're often readable and wise gems. And then editing the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology was um, quite a labor of love over many years, but my colleague, former colleague Walter Elwell, had gotten together a coalition of American and British evangelicals, and some even from farther around the world, to write really biblical, really readable articles on this vast array of topics. And I think many evangelicals in the pews of my Uh, Generation have not known that such a resource was available to them. And many evangelical scholars of my generation have been so busy trying to get acquainted with the wider academic world, with earlier Christian traditions and materials that they didn't know, that there's probably a need for retrieval among us evangelicals as to our own 20th century heritage. It's certainly not a perfect heritage. Um, we we need to correct those blind spots. One example would be that the edition of the EDT that I inherited didn't have an article on the Doctrine of the Trinity. And I think that is obviously a tremendous oversight that shows us something about evangelical theological culture that needed to change. Mm. But there's also just a tremendous amount of very helpful, practical, approachable material there, and I wanted to retrieve it for another Generation. So those are some of the mental markers that have guided me in in thinking about the the label evangelical.
2: And as you think about you know the years ahead, uh, because oftentimes uh, evangelical theology can be quite unpredictable, as as you hinted at. Uh, But as you think about okay, hope for the future. uh, You mentioned uh, just a minute ago how. Uh, Even in the the time that you've been uh, writing on this, you've noticed oversights. uh, Maybe some major oversights. uh, The doctrine of God or the doctrine of the Trinity being one of them, uh, in which uh, it either is not discussed or or the type of Trinity we've uh, embraced is is maybe less uh, out of line than uh, than with those who have come before us and have, have thought about it very carefully. But as you look to the future, um. How do do you have hope? Are you optimistic uh, as to where evangelical theology will go? I mean, you mentioned Packer, who certainly is like a a pillar uh, when we think about uh, evangelical theology of the past. Um, Where is it going in the future?
0: Well, my my friends and family members would probably tell you that, in their view, I am a pessimist. (laughs) Um, I am often called Eeyore. Uh, I point out that I am just a realist because often my predictions are right, Mm -hmm. and my pessimism may also be shaped by being a Detroit Tigers and Detroit Lions fan.
2: (laughs) Surely. um,
0: (laughs) Good things only come along every so often. (laughs) But, um, you know, to think theologically about the evangelical future is to think about God and not simply about ourselves. So, Um, God has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. That's not, I think, only talking about evangelicals, but I think it does include us or at least include large, large swaths of us. So there is cause for hope in our eschatological inheritance and in the more proximate ecclesial promise of the indefectibility of the church, even if it falls on hard times. Mm -hmm. And if you pay attention to evangelical history, there often are dramatic revivals that partially capitalize on faithful human agency, but usually transcend predictable human agency and the spirit blows where he wills. Mm -hmm. And we it sure seems like we are due in American evangelical Christianity for another revival if we are going to um, move forward. So uh, I should be praying more consistently and more faithfully to that end. And if we have hope, it's going to be in God and not in ourselves. That said, there are some encouraging signs along with the many troubling signs. Um, I know you are in, involved in a PhD program. Uh, We have one at Wheaton, and I continue to be struck by a generation of up-and-coming church leaders from around the world and not um, just the U.S. and maybe not even primarily from the U.S. that are committed to biblical faithfulness, that have um, far more skin in the game for ministry than I have had. I mean, I have students from China and other persecuted uh, church situations around the world whose faithfulness to the gospel is a profound challenge to my own. And they are thinking contextually about the teaching of scripture in ways that are faithful and creative. Mm. So, where that all will lead is impossible simply to sit here and predict. But I routinely hear uh, friends from schools like TEDS, colleagues at Wheaton, and um, people elsewhere saying that there are many of their students who encourage them with regard to the future. And I think that's true for me,
2: too. It's so encouraging to hear, Dan. Uh, like like you mentioned, uh, sometimes uh, the... Optimism comes from uh, unexpected places, <laughs> and yes. I, I have found that uh, to be so so true. Um, uh, and some of my students, uh, some of those who are uh, coming into say uh, a, a, the program uh, from another country, uh, in which the context is very different, sometimes even hostile to evangelicals, uh, and yet. At the same time, uh, it's actually producing uh, not just pastors but even scholars who are uh, really thinking about the Bible and about theology in ways that are, are quite helpful and fresh. Uh, but also, like you said, still faithful, a type of creative fidelity. Um, and, and so that is—I uh, I, I really resonate with you. I have found that so encouraging. Uh, one other thing that's so encouraging there are so many of the uh, theological uh, friendships that uh, a theologian can develop over the years. Uh, to those who yes. are listeners, uh, if you have been a student at any point, uh, you know some of those friendships uh, student to student or student professor can be uh, just instrumental. Uh, but even if you're a pastor in a church, for example, or maybe even a missionary, uh, no doubt you've experienced this where uh, a friendship with another pastor or another missionary can uh, really be used by God to help you endure and maybe even refine some of your own thinking. Dan, I know that uh, there's probably many people you could mention, but uh, Kevin Van Hooser, uh, you have had a, a, a friendship with him and you've written, of course, uh, uh, theological books together. Uh, th- I think, for example, of your book uh, *Theology and the Mirror of Scripture*, and uh, other things that you've done. And of course, you also have—I was—I didn't even know about it, but it came in the mail. Uh, *Hearing and Doing the Word*, uh, a new book with T.N.T. Clark, uh, *The Drama of Evangelical Hermeneutics* in honor of Kevin Van Hooser. Uh I, I just just before a conversation, uh, this I opened this in the mail and. I was flipping through it. I haven't had the chance to read the whole thing yet. Uh, but as I was uh, reading uh, your introduction, I, I really highlighted and just circled uh, a few lines. I, I just want to read and then give you the chance to reflect on. You say, this is a, towards the very end, you say post war evangelicals began their return to academic life and biblical studies. The starting point, understandably, understandably was being biblical. As other evangelicals made their way into history, philosophy, literature, and beyond, they encountered broader hermeneutical challenges and opportunities. The subsequent need was becoming more theological. And from there, you point to Van Hooser uh, as one person, uh, one friend that has helped in many ways to uh, practice evangelical exegesis uh, with a mind towards uh, even uh, theology at large or even theological retrieval. Can you reflect on just, uh, well, maybe your friendship with Kevin, but then also how uh, friendships like that can be important for theology?
0: We were able today to have lunch with Kevin, and my wife Amy and I, with Kevin and Sylvie and his wife, and with Doug and Wilma Sweeney. Doug was my co-editor on the Feshrift, and he's in town for the Center for Pastor Theologians gathering. And so we were able to have a two-hour lunch today. It was wonderful to be face-to-face in person, which doesn't happen that often across the one hour of separation of Chicago miles. And um, so that fellowship was rich and it is a special opportunity to be able to honor your Dr. father with a, a Feshrift and to write your own historical interpretation of his work and its significance. So that project has been a labor of love and it's been a delight to see it come to fruition. We're hoping to have a conference in the spring around his 65th birthday to, Mm. to launch the work, uh, COVID and other circumstances permitting, uh, when I, uh, first contacted Kevin about being my doctoral supervisor, he was at Edinburgh. And I was trying to figure out a way to find the money to to get over there. And then he wrote back at his instigation a few weeks later and said that he would be coming back to Trinity. And that, in God's providence, made it much more possible for me to study with him, even if Deerfield, Illinois, is not quite as romantic a location as Edinburgh, (laughs) Scotland. And when I arrived on campus and got through summer German and then he moved into his office, I, I still remember helping him a little bit move into the office, but then, you know, he just sat down and we talked for an hour, an hour and a half right there, and I was single at the time and had, had just moved there, and he and his family immediately had me over regularly and Uh, welcomed me into their lives and so years later when we got married Amy and I were able to have him preach the sermon at our wedding and then our daughter was able to be a flower girl at their daughter's wedding and so it became this deep relationship in which it went far beyond just theological propositions to debate or theological publications to work on but uh, Kevin um, has promoted and embodied to me a kind of Christian humanism in the best sense of what J.I. Packer was calling for when he would champion that term. Kevin put more um, more feet to that for me um, because I could be closer to him and because he thought m- more about it in some ways in connection with um, hermeneutics and the liberal arts and so on. So to be able to share that journey then as I've taught in a liberal arts context at Wheaton and to have him close by has been a, a great gift and it has certainly uh, formed me as a person as much as it's formed me as a theologian. We've been
2: talking to Daniel Trier who is professor of theology at Wheaton uh, College Graduate School in Wheaton, Illinois. Uh I would encourage our listeners, if you haven't uh, read one of his books, uh, do make sure you pick up uh, Evangelical, Introducing Evangelical Theology uh, out with Baker Academic. You may also want to get your hands on his commentary on Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, maybe even preach on these books of the Bible, as well as his Introducing Theological Interpretation of Scripture, uh, TIS being uh, such an important a movement that continues to be discussed and debated, and uh, refined as Dan has talked about in this podcast, refined uh, with an eye to future of evangelical theology. Dan, thank you so much for joining me on the Credo Podcast.
0: Thanks for the opportunity, Matthew. I enjoyed it.
2: Now you can
1: fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. dot com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcast to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine
2: matters.